Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist, a podcast, a YouTube channel, a show where criminals write down their crimes. All of these three things. This is, uh, <laughs> I just started recording this episode, got about 20 minutes in, and then realized that my microphone was off. So the first three pages of this, I'm intimately familiar with. Normally in this show, what happens is Callum writes me a script. I will read the script, and then Jen afterwards will, uh, she'll, she, she's, she's our editor. She puts in the music. She puts in the images. If you're watching this show, if you are watching this show on YouTube, please do use that like button. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, consider leaving a review. That would be amazing. Yeah, normally what happens is Callum writes this for me, and I cold read it. I've never read it before, but as I just said, I'm super familiar with the first three pages. I didn't really get to any of the solution parts because this is a super big episode today. But uh, yeah, if it sounds like I've read it before, that's because I have. Uh, what is this all about? It's up in smoke, the sod of children's disappearance. And now because I've read the first three pages, I can say, or was it a disappearance or was it? Anyway, let's just jump in. This is The Casual Criminalist. On Christmas Eve 1945, the Sodder family of Fayetteville, West Virginia, and the last time I recorded it, I made a joke about not being able to pronounce Fayetteville. But I'm like, that joke's now stale. It's like, but it's not because no one's heard it because the microphone wasn't on. <laughs> I need to get better at my job. Uh, we're getting ready to turn in for the night. That was no mean feat for the parents, George and Jenny, because they had a large family, 10 children, one of whom was fully grown and off with the U.S. Army. After dinner, 17-year-old Marion handed out presents to the little kids from the dime store where she worked. Yeah, 10 kids. I have one kid now. I got another kid on the way. And I'm like, 10 kids. <laughs> I mean, I like being a dad, but 10 kids. Are you actually mad? At around 10 p.m., the two oldest boys, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., went up to bed on the second floor. Their parents were next to turn in, taking two-year-old Sylvia up to her crib in the first-floor room. The rest of the kids pleaded with them to stay up late, and they were allowed to do so, so long as they fed the cows and closed the chicken coop before bed. As George and Jenny kissed their kids goodnight and closed the bedroom door, they had no idea that this would be the last time they ever saw them. At 1am, little Sylvia awoke to her mother, snatching her out of her crib. Thick ribbons of smoke were rising from under the door, and beyond it, a fire was raging throughout the bottom floor of the house from George's first-floor study. The parents managed to carry their youngest outside to safety, shaking Marion awake as they went, and they started screaming for the others to hurry outside. A few tense moments passed before two figures finally appeared through the smoke. The two oldest boys burst outside with their hair singed from bolting down the stairway. George and Jenny looked up in horror as the fire began to spread to the attic where the rest of the bedrooms were. None of their five other kids had made it out yet, and they couldn't even see them at the windows. Thinking fast, George scaled the side of the house and punched out the glass of a window, cutting a deep gash down his forearm. He tried to climb inside, but the smoke and heat were unbearable. Yet, yeah, 1945 is a while ago, what, 75 years ago, and I'm just like, nowadays, I'm just so glad that house fires are so rare. I feel that this used to be a common occurrence and we've got tons of uh, firefighters everywhere because people's houses used to burn down. And I was reading an article or something that now firefighters don't have that much to do and there's too many firefighters because uh, just fire safety got awesome. And I mean, you've got to have the firefighters because when there's a big emergency and stuff, you need lots of people on hand. But it's like, they, there's just way less firefighting to do because, you know, back in the day, 
smoke a cigarette in bed look don't smoke cigarettes in bed but it's like that cigarette you're gonna fall asleep with it and it's gonna set your bed on fire and then you know things are gonna go you're gonna have a bad time but apparently you know nowadays the like comforter the quilt the bed whatever it's like made from like fire retardant material the uh cigarettes apparently will also go out rather than just keep burning or like somehow they they don't catch stuff on i don't know how it works i don't even know if it's true but fire retardant stuff means there's way less house fires which is awesome when i was a kid i think i I told this story on uh, my other channel business blaze maybe i actually told it on this channel but there's a there's an advert for changing the batteries in your smoke alarm that has haunted me for my life i saw it i must have been i don't know like eight years old ten years old whatever and it's like it's it's a a government a government advert you know where they get you to do something like put your seatbelts on because apparently that's not like obvious enough you know belt up in the back or whatever was a big campaign but this one was about changing the batteries in your smoke alarm and it was like really chirpy there'd be this happy music playing in the background like do you forget the little things in life forget to take out the trash oh no forget your keys oh no forget to change the batteries in your smoke alarm boom smash cut to the guy uh sitting in front of his house and it's all burned down and he's holding a picture of his family in crime because they all died in a house fire because he forgot to change the batteries in his smoke alarm (laughs) it's like oh my god that is the sort of shit that will haunt you for life and uh yeah if you get the chance to watch that it's an excellent way to ruin your day let's move on change the batteries in your smoke alarm though all right maybe do it today <laughs> little Silvio watched on confused and terrified as her dad and brothers frantically tried to save the rest of the family they ran to fetch a ladder around the back of the house but somehow it was missing amid the desperation a stroke of genius they would reverse one of their coal trucks against the house and climb up it but when george and the boys hopped into the cabs neither of the trucks would start meanwhile that is it's beginning to sound an awful lot like sabotage is like who took that ladder where are those trucks like really uh, it's a little bit little bit coincidental isn't it meanwhile marion was sprinting off to a neighbor's house to call the fire department but the call just rang out without an answer another neighbor saw the fire burning in the distance and called it in from a nearby bar again no response so this good samaritan drove all the way into town to speak with fire chief fj morris directly ah uh, 1945 he was drinking at a bar and he drives into town i guess it's an emergency and you could you know if i was in that situation i don't think i'd drink and drive I think it'd be like, yo, anyone in this pub not drunk? <laughs> Time was running out and the family were running out of ideas. In a last-ditch effort, George tried to collect water from a well in a futile attempt to combat the blaze, but it was frozen over. So all the survivors could do was scream the children's names while the top floor collapsed into smoke and flames. Any hope of saving the five kids trapped inside was long gone. Despite only being two at the time, the sight of her childhood home collapsing in flames would stick with Sylvia for the rest of her life, as would the mystery of what exactly happened to her five siblings that day. Picking through the wreckage. See, although the Sodders were convinced at the time that they're just helpless, we watched their five children perish, they soon weren't so sure. Some things just didn't quite seem to add up, like how none of the kids came to the bedroom window when they shouted. In fact, it almost seems as if the five of them weren't even in the house at all. These doubts first began to materialize after the fire crew arrived gloriously late. After the neighbor tracked down the fire chief, it took ages for him to ready his crew because they relied on an old-school relay system, each member calling the house phone of the next. Still, you'd think that they could have managed the 2.5-mile drive from the fire station to the house a bit faster than the seven-hour response time. Guys, what are you up to? It's two and a half miles away. You could crawl there faster. I mean, but you'd need, you know, water and stuff, but or whatever firemen use to put out fires. 
But I mean, come on. I've had Amazon packages arrive faster. Yeah, I mean, bloody hell. By the time they arrived at 8am, the house had collapsed into a smouldering pile of wreckage. The fire crew spent the saddest Christmas day imaginable, sorting through what remains for the remains of the kids who never made it out. But somehow, there weren't any. No bones, no teeth, no nothing. The five missing children, Betty 5, Jenny 8, Lewis 9, Martha 12, Maurice 14. Not a single trace was found. It's not the sort of thing you want to spend too much time picturing, but rest assured, there should have been quite a lot to find. That would also help explain why nobody could smell burning flesh during the ordeal. With that, I mean, in a giant house fire? Are you really going to be able to pick that up? I kind of hope not, because that is horrible. Chief Morris speculated that their remains had been completely incinerated, but that's not what usually happens during a standard house fire. Within the next few days, a fire inspector from the state police determined that the tragedy was caused by faulty wiring. Further investigations were planned, but within a week, George Sodder decided that he couldn't bear the sight of the smoking pit of rubble any longer and filled in the basement with five feet of dirt. Dude. I mean, I get that it's not a nice thing to look at. There's your house that burned down with your kids inside. But it's like, considering that you are a little bit like, well, were there really people? Were my kids really inside? I mean, just deal with it for like a week or two while the police do their investigation and put evidence in boxes and that kind of policey stuff that, you know, they get up to. What are you up to? Why would you do that? He intended to plant a memorial garden on top. George, mate, there's no rush. On a side note, if your home ever becomes a potential crime scene, literally burying all of the evidence is the last thing you should do. Yes, agreed. What are you doing? Also, where's the ladder? Why don't the truck start? It's just a massive coincidence, George. Around the same time, death certificates were issued for the five Sodder children, listing their cause of death as fire or suffocation. But the fact that there were no remains to lay to rest meant that George and Jenny couldn't quite accept the verdict. All grieving parents probably go through some level of denial, but as the Sodders began to run over the months leading up to the fire in their heads, some strange little episode seemed to confirm their suspicions that the children never actually died that day. For one, why was the ladder missing? And why, when the two coal trucks, property of George Sodder's hauling company, had worked the day before, did both fail to start that night? It was almost as if someone had set it up so that nobody would be able to access the second floor. A few months prior, George recalls receiving a visit from a stranger applying for a job at his firm. He commented that the two fuse boxes at the back of the house were going to cause a fire someday, and that struck him as strange, seeing as the house's wiring safety seeing as the house's wiring safety had just been checked a few weeks prior after installing an electric stove. Stranger than that, though, was the visit from a man referred to only as FJ. He was an insurance salesman who visited the Sodders on a cold call in November. George had once worked for the man, and their relationship ended on bad terms back in 1943. <laughs> If there's someone who I used to work for, who's like, I, I would, and we didn't end on good terms, and they came to my house to sell me insurance, I'd be like, mate, what are you up to? There's like many other people you could sell insurance to. You had to choose me. We're not friends. I don't like you. Sell selling insurance to strangers is probably hard enough. Selling it to people who don't like you, it's probably going to be more difficult. What are you up to? He was also a co-signer on their home insurance, which what, <laughs> which he previously bumped up without their knowledge, and was now asking them to take out a life insurance policy on their children. Mate, you are a sketchy dude. Also, George, why is someone co-signing your house insurance who you used to work for and fell out with? That's very strange. 
When the couple refused, because ensuring the life of a two-year-old is morbid as hell, FJ kicked off, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed, he told them. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Oh my god, dude. Are you like a fascist? This is 1945. Oh no, why are you up to? Also, why on earth would you get life insurance on a two-year-old? The point of life insurance isn't some like joyous payout when your kid dies. The point of life insurance is that if a breadwinner or a big earner in your family dies, the rest of the family has some money to take care of while they figure their lives out. Or maybe not even. Maybe you can insure up to the fact that like they're okay. That's the point of life insurance. Not like, why would you have life insurance on a two? Am I? Is that is that something people do? Or am I being crazy? Sounds like you went to a bit too heavy on the hard sell. Yeah, no sh. Callum. Oh my God. If you're confused about the name check for a deceased Italian dictator, it makes a lot more sense when you know about the background of George Sodder. That wasn't actually his original name at all. He was born Giorgio Sodu in Sardinia, Italy. Giorgio immigrated to the States at the age of 13 with his older brother, but soon found himself alone in New York City. He spent his teens and twenties working on the railroads before meeting Jenny Cipriani herself, an immigrant from the old country. The Appalachian town of Fayetteville had an active community of Italians who drew the couple there in the 1920s and they started amassing that army of offspring. A few years later, George founded his own trucking company and the couple were able to afford a nice house for their family. A county magistrate called them one of the most respected middle-class families around. But not everyone was a fan of the Sodders. The patriarch George was an outspoken critic of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini throughout the war. Well, I like George now. And this rubbed some in the community the wrong way. Could the fire have been an act of comeuppance from some Mussolini loyalists in the town? Judging by the insurance broker's threat, it sure seems so. Yeah, but the insurance broker's a crazy dude. Most people aren't going to be thinking like that, are they? We're going to burn down a guy's house with his family inside because we don't like his politics. And people think like the political situation's bad today. So, oh my God, it's always been bad. Remember that. The past was the worst. That might be a clue for the why. As for the how, Jenny Sodder recalled a strange little detail from the night of the fire. At about half past midnight, the house phone rang and she'd rushed to the, out of the bedroom to answer it. On the other end of the line was a woman with the sounds of a party in the background. She asked for someone that never lived there and Jenny told her that she had the wrong number. The woman just laughed and hung up. Are they checking that they're home so they can go burn their house down with them inside? Don't, that is so crazy. As Jenny went back to the bedroom, she spotted Marion sleeping on the couch. The kids had left the lights on in the kitchen and the living room, forgotten to lock the door, and left the curtains open. That was unlike them, but she didn't make much of it at the time. She just did it all herself and went back to bed. A few minutes after settling back in, she heard a sharp thud coming from above, followed by the sound of something rolling down the roof. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're just putting this together like now? Immediately by... Whoa, whoa. People weren't... I mean, really? Again, Jenny ignored it and fell back to sleep. The next time she woke up was when the smoke was filling her lungs and it jolted her awake. Witness reports. Things were strange enough already, and they only got more interesting as various witness reports started trickling in. First, after seeing the report in the papers, a local woman reported that she had spotted the kids passing the car while the fire was burning. The waitress at a rest stop about 50 miles out of town claimed that she served breakfast to a group of five kids that looked just like the missing Sodder offspring. She also noted a car in the parking lot at the time with Florida license plates. Everything always comes back to Florida, man.
it is uh on that channel i actually mentioned earlier business blaze we have like a whole running series of like videos on florida man because he just gets up to the craziest shit. then someone came forward to report seeing a man leaving the scene of the fire carrying a block and tackle pulley system often used to remove engines from vehicles as you remember george's trucks had failed to start i mean that's a bit of a if i'm like okay i gotta sabotage a car so it won't won't start i'm not immediately like well I guess we'd better remove the engine. <laughs> I just let just open it up and start cutting some wires. It's probably or like loosening some bolts in like a 1940s car. Probably not going to work brilliantly after that. But most promising of all was the report from a bus driver who claimed to have seen a man throwing balls of fire on the roof as he passed by in the night. Jenny remembered the sound of the thud on the rooftop and became convinced that it was the source of the blaze. After the snow thawed in 1946, the family went back to the site to do some more digging around. Little Sylvia was wandering around her old garden when she stumbled across a hard rubber object, military green in color and hollow with a twist-off cap. When she brought it to her father, he said it resembled a used pineapple bomb, a kind of napalm-filled incendiary grenade used during the war. Then, when an electronics technician inspected their phone lines, he told them that it appeared as if they'd been cut on the night of the fire rather than burning up. This is it. It's sabotage. I mean, well, it sounds super obvious now, <laughs> but there's obviously something up, isn't there? And it struck the couple that if the fire had really been caused by faulty wiring, then the fuses for their entire house would surely have blown. But as they left the house, the Christmas tree lights were still on. Conclusive proof of ar arson or just grasping at straws. The, the pineapple bomb thing that that sounds like pretty conclusive proof of arson uh confirmation bias is a hell of a thing and jenny in particular had already been hard at work trying to cast out on the official version of events she'd read in a magazine about a similar case in which three mostly intact skeletons were recovered and a crematorium employee told her that it takes two hours at 2000 degrees fahrenheit to fully dispose of a body and even then some fragments remain the solder house collapsed after a mere 45 minutes, and curiously, the remains of household appliances were found in the pile of rubble that had collapsed into the basement. So wouldn't they have burned up as well? So she started experimenting herself, rather than set fire to someone else's home in the name of justice and science. I just wanted to see if the bodies would burn. It's like, that is the thing a psycho says. What was your name? I already forgot your name. Jenny? Don't do that. She ran tests with food leftovers, burning the bones of chickens, beef, and pigs to see if they would be reduced ash under conditions similar to the house fire. Every time, the bones were charred but intact. It was becoming increasingly likely that this fire was no accident. Someone had intentionally started it, kidnapped the children, while making it appear that they had died in the fire. Kidnapping all five children? Also, like, kidnapping them? It's gonna be- there's five of them. And are you kidnapping them after they've gone upstairs or are you kidnapping? No, because all of the stuff was, the curtains were open, all of that stuff was, the door was unlocked. So the kids had been taken from downstairs. But kidnapping five children silently sounds really, really hard. I get the feeling they were like lured away or something, which I know is kidnapping as well. But it's like, it's not like they went, someone went in and grabbed them. Or maybe they did. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Let's see. I, I obviously don't know. Otherwise, I wouldn't be guessing, would I? But one thing you never have to guess about is today's fantastic sponsor, HelloFresh. Yes, that's right. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. It offers mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. What does that mean? Well, it means you get to skip the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and 
and affordable. I personally hate going to the grocery store because you go there to buy some ingredients for a meal and you spend like half an hour going around trying to find all the stupid things and it's like, why is this located over here? Why is it in this part of the supermarket? Why supermarket? And then they don't have sour cream or whatever and you have to go to the grocery store, the, the corner store on the way home. And it's just all a bit of a disaster, really. Well, HelloFresh's quick and easy meals, 30 minutes. They even say here there's 15 to 20 minute dinners, which is even faster. That's outrageous. 50 menu and market items every week. Enjoy a wide variety of easy, delicious options for all three meals a day. That's right, they even do breakfast, plus snacks, special treats in between those meals if you feel so inclined. They're all sourced directly from local growers and delivered from the farm to your door in under a week. Contact free because COVID, of course. Hello Fresh slash Casual14 and use code Casual14. That's Casual14. And you get what? Up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That is a deal. Get on it. And let's get back to the show. On the trail. If an alternative version of events were possible, it soon got buried under George and Jenny's very public campaign to recover their lost children. In 1947, they went direct to the FBI, eliciting a personal response from J. Edgar Hoover himself. He told them, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Wait, so Hoover's response was like, no, no, no. He, they got a response from Hoover personally. And that response was that he is not helping out. Hoover, everyone knows you're a dick already. <laughs> Just like cementing that reputation. To get involved, they needed the blessing of local cops in the fire department who declined their offer of help. As far as they were concerned, the Sodders were just a desperate pair of parents clinging on to lost hope. However, if you're of a conspiratorial mindset, and I know a lot of you are, a few things happened which suggested that the town officials might have an ulterior motive for smothering the Sodders' investigation in the crib. Oh, Callum, that is, that is a dark uh, pun right there. That is, that is really dark. Without the FBI, the couple decided to look elsewhere for help. George and Jenny hired a PI with a top-class detective novel name, C.C. Tinsley. He did some digging into some of the stranger aspects of the case, including the shady insurance salesman from before. As it turns out, the man who warned that the house would burn down because of George's anti-Mussolini stance was also a member of the coroner's jury, which determined that the fire was accidental. Okay, so far, uh, I'm not conspiracy-prone enough to be like, yeah, that's enough. But I'm, get, I'm getting the feeling there's more. Because <laughs> that, that definitely pushes me in that direction. It is very suspicious, but it's not enough. To add to the whiff of small-town conspiracy, Tinsley uncovered a strange rumor from a minister in town. A lot of notable people came to His Holiness to confess their sins, and he recalled a strange claim from Fire Chief F.J. Morris several weeks back. Aside from seeking forgiveness for the deadly delay, he also told the minister that despite claiming to have found no remains, he actually uncovered a human heart from the wreckage. How do you just find the heart that is super fucked up? What are you talking about? Also, minister, aren't you supposed to have some uh, something called like confidentiality? Like when you go to a priest, I've never done this because I'm not religious or Catholic. Is it Catholic who do confession? I've never been to confession, obviously. But aren't you, isn't that that's supposed to be confidential, right? You can't the priest can't just be all like chit chatting about that, shit, right? Otherwise, no one would ever go. <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah, I murdered someone. Then the police shove your house. Ah. Oh! I thought I was forgiven of all my sins. Not wanting to distress the family, he kept it secret and buried it in a dynamite box on the grounds. First of all, a heart. 
Despite all the bones, teeth, and generally fire-resistant parts of the body burning to ash, somehow a whole heart survived intact. It was a pretty unlikely story, but when George and the PI dug at the spot mentioned, sure enough, they found a box there. And sure enough, there was a lump of red flesh inside. This is mega fucked up. They took her to the funeral home in the town of Montgomery to get help verifying the remains. The funeral director told them that they had unearthed what appeared to be a hunk of fresh beef liver. No closer to solving the mystery, but hey, at least they had something for dinner. <laughs> no, you're not going to be eating that. Also, who thinks... I, I've seen beef liver, and I've seen beef hearts in the butcher. They do not look similar. If you're going to put a, pretend there's a heart, why not just buy a pig heart or something? It's similar sort of size. Just throw one of those in there. You weirdos. <laughs> they confronted the fire chief for burying butcher's offcuts around their property, and he confessed to making the whole thing up. Why would you make this up and then just go tell the priest in a confession which you assumed was confidential? What is the possible reasoning? Unfortunately, he had the scientific knowledge and deception skills of a toddler and thought burying a box of offal was better than scattering some actual bones. But of course, he was doing it altruistically. Morris was so sure that the children died in the fire that he wanted to give the family closure. This is the weirdest way to do this, Morris. It seems like not only are your... Uh, Scientific knowledge and skills that of a toddler, but your general brain power is that of a toddler. And I have a toddler. Their brain power is not that big yet. Their brain will get big. I mean, it's very impressive the stuff they get up to and understand, but it's also like, you know, they're not they're not gonna be figuring any of this shit out, that's for sure. Leave that to your big brain Simon. And you, dear listener, you're also a big brain, I'm certain. Look, you listen to this podcast. And for that compliment, you can leave me a five-star review <laughs> if you feel like it. He thought that if they could find any sign of their missing kids, they could finally give up the hunt and find peace. That's one way to frame it, but on the other hand, the guy hid a piece of food and told two distraught parents that it was their deceased kid's heart. Yes, what is wrong with you, Morris? Hardly the best way to help them process their grief, my dude, but perhaps that wasn't his goal anyway. After all, it was his organization that failed to answer the emergency call that night, and he claimed that he couldn't bring the fire engine over by himself, despite it being so frustratingly close to the solder house that he could have pushed it over by hand in those seven hours. Did he perhaps have another motive for wanting the sodders to drop their investigation? I mean, there's definitely some mad suspicion... I mean, obviously something suspicious has happened. Are the police and the fire people in on it? Currently, I'm like, no, but but I get the feeling it's going to transform to a yes pretty sharpish because it's already like I'm, I'm 90% there. Maybe I'm 100% there. I mean, that is so suspicious, but it could just be the guy's just a bit dim. I think he's probably just a bit dim, or at least that's that's a possibility. If there really was a conspiracy to part George and Jenny from their kids, then it seemed to have worked. Years passed without many developments of note and no word from the children. This was strange, seeing as the oldest kid, Maurice, was 14 at the time of the disappearance. Would he not have tried to contact his parents if he was still alive? Um, again, it brings me back to that, like, their kidnapping. Or their leaving somehow. Maybe they faked it and left, or maybe someone helped them organize it and they left. But then the family seems nice, like middle class everything's okay i mean we don't know what's going on behind the scenes but there's nothing to indicate anything uh nefarious so far regardless the sodders held out hope that he was along with their four other kids alive and well every time they saw a kid in the paper that looked a bit like them or a news story about abductions flashed up on the tv 
they thought they might finally catch a break. The first came just two years after the fire. George was convinced he spotted one of the missing kids in the newspaper in a picture of school kids in New York City. One girl in the photo was a dead ringer for Betty, so he traveled to NYC to find her, but the girl's parents refused to let her see him. I mean, if he was wrong, I fully understand. If some crazy stranger came to your doorstep saying your daughter was actually his, you probably wouldn't invite him in for tea and biscuits either. Yeah, you'd be like, what are you talking about, you crazy man? Get out of here. You weirdo. Most of the tips which came in from those early years ended up in disappointment. So in an attempt to conclusively prove to the world that they weren't losing their minds, the Sodders commissioned a fresh excavation of the site in the summer of 1949. See, there had long been a theory floated around that the remains were in the rubble. But George's hastiness in covering the scene with dirt prevented them from being properly accounted for. To put those ideas to bed, they enlisted the help of Oscar Hunter, a pathologist out of D.C. He and his team managed to uncover all kinds of relics from the worst day of the family's lives. Hoffman books, charred coins, pieces of furniture buried in ash, and among all this miscellaneous, he found the most significant discovery yet, some shards of human vertebrae. To the local authorities, this was the final proof necessary. But nothing could be said conclusively until the pieces were examined. The family sent the shards to the Smithsonian Institution, who presented their findings at the state capitol building several weeks later. Strangely, the bones never showed any sign of fire damage. They also managed to determine a rough age for the remains, 17 to 22. Apparently, the vertebrae fuse as we mature through puberty, and these samples showed a level of fusing that probably meant they did not belong to Maurice, who at the time was 14 years old and he was the oldest child missing. Not impossible, just really unlikely. So whose spine did they find then? That's not the sort of thing that you just keep lying around the house. No, and also if it's no fire damage, I mean, there was a huge fire. We're looking for something that is, we're looking for charred bones. We know this. They know how hot the fire was. This is still super suspicion and proves absolutely nothing. Well, the report also mentioned that since the fire didn't even burn for an hour, a lot more than some vertebrae should have been left behind. So the theory goes that these bones were actually already present in the dirt, which George bulldozed over the smoldering basement. A while later, C.C. Tinsley reportedly matched the samples to a graveyard in nearby Mount Hope, which for me raises all sorts of questions in and of itself, like why was George's company hauling around graveyard soil? That's just asking to be cursed. Yep, George brought this on himself. It was the hauling of the graveyard dirt and those bloody Mussolini comments. At any rate, it has no bearing on the main mystery of the day. As to that, the state governor and police superintendent rounded off the hearing by telling the Sodders their mission to find the children was, and always had been, hopeless. The case remained closed. Wait, so their mission to find them was hopeless? Because they're dead or just because he died? I guess because he thinks they're dead. But it's so suspicious. How can you not reopen this? There's no evidence of there being bodies in there. One billboard outside Fayetteville, West Virginia. Despite running into dead ends everywhere they went, the family were adamant that their children were still out there somewhere. Abandoned by the authorities, they decided to appeal, di appeal directly to the public for leads. In 1952, they raised a billboard at the side of the fire along Route 16 with pictures of their missing children and their names underneath. In the third, in a thick black font along the top were painted the words, What was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? Alongside this was the promise of a $5,000 reward, which is a lot more money today. At the same time, they launched a flyer campaign advertising the cash reward. When the first wave of tips proved underwhelming, they upped the board bounty to a whopping 10 grand, over $90,000 in today's money. 
The funny thing about 90 grand paydays is that they tend to get a lot of people's tongues wagging. Yeah, people are just going to take a shot because 90 grand is a lot of money. They're going to be like, yeah, yeah, I think I saw those kids. Maybe. Where's my 90 grand, eh? Even when they have nothing useful to say, yep. As you can imagine, this spurred on the reports and sightings trickled in from around the country. One letter claims that Martha was living as a nun in St. Louis. Another claimed that the kids were in Florida, raised by a different distant relative of Jenny. In 1953, a motel manager named Ida Crutchfield reported seeing the kids pass through in the week after the fire. Four out of the five at least. She claims that they were in the company of two men of Italian extraction. As she said, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. George had hopped around all over the country investigating each and every lead that came in, but this one seemed like the strongest so far. It spurred speculation that some shady characters might have had it out for him and his family. See, nobody quite knew why George had decided to move to America in the first place. Oh, are we getting a mafia story? Did George run away from a past life like doing some mafia sh and made some enemies? And then they came to kidnap his child. It's a weird move, isn't it? Why not just come and take him out? Why not just like pop, pop? You know, normal mafia style. Why do we have to burn down his... Or Weird. With his backstory pretty much blank, people took the chance to fill it in with all kinds of theories. Perhaps he or his family had angered the Sicilian mafia, or better yet, perhaps they were mafia, and George had tried to flee to the States after something went bad in Sardinia. He did change his name, after all, probably to fit in and avoid discrimination, but maybe also to hide from his past. Could this kidnapping have been their revenge for whatever caused him to leave Italy? If that were the case, maybe the mystery job hunter from before was scouting out the place and making sure that they'd found the right guy. Only George himself could know that for sure. Whatever the case, the tips continually led to nothing. George and Jenny remained obsessed with the idea that the children were still out there, and the public, out of goodwill or the sake of the reward, were all too happy to keep their hopes alive. As one police report put it, the Sodder family are being kept in constant turmoil by unscrupulous persons in efforts to procure what money they can from the family. Whether the kids were alive or not, any chance of closure was probably lost within a whirl of speculation and exploitation. What was their fate? Kidnapped, murdered, or are they still alive? So that's the majority of the significant evidence in this case. So let's have a crack at that key question from the Sodders billboard. What was the fate of their children? Cover up. The first thing to address is the likelihood of some grand conspiracy amongst town officials. This was the angle taken by the family themselves, who felt obstructed and cheated at every turn. The text on the last version of their billboard ended with, What was the motive of the law enforcement officers involved? Why did they lie and force us to accept the lies? That's a pretty big accusation and must have captured the imaginations of a lot of people that drove by it. But honestly, it's probably one of the least credible takes. For one, the fire crew response time wasn't exactly unheard of. Their numbers were severely depleted from a little old thing called World War II, and Christmas Eve was bound to be one of the toughest times to get through to them anyway. And the fact that the insurance salesman was on the fire jury can be explained by the fact that he was an insurance salesman. It's kind of his job to know about this stuff, that Fayetteville is a small town of under 3,000 people. Okay, yeah, it's like, it was suspicious. But unless there was something else, it's not really going to push us over the edge into, like, definitely was involved. And also, any, like, the delay of the telephone lines being cut has got nothing to do with the fire department. It's just, I think there's someone else involved who's trying to make things go wrong. 
From the authorities' perspective, they were convinced that the soldiers were just driven mad by desperation and grief and were clutching at straws. In that light, their attempts to shut down the case, even when the FBI got involved, look more practical than nefarious. If we go with that last angle, then even the fire chief Morris and his box of beef was a painfully tone-deaf attempt to give them some much-needed closure. Yeah, again, and Morris isn't some, like, criminal mastermind. I really don't think so. I think he's just a bit dim. Mussolini and the Mafia. Now we're talking. Closure wouldn't come easy, though. George Sodder remained convinced throughout his entire life that someone had taken his kids. To explain why they never tried to get in touch, he told the papers... They could have been shown a picture of the burnt house and told everyone was killed. The younger ones might not know us, but we would know them anywhere. So who was feeding them these lies? The Mussolini lovers? Well, that angle seems pretty thin, too. Yes, that insurance salesman did seem to protect the fire, but consider this. What if it was just a completely unrelated comment? Just some fiery Italian guy throwing out insults before because George pissed him off again. Also, he's an insurance salesman. He's going to be like, dude, terrible stuff is going to happen to your family. You better get insurance isn't I'm going to do terrible stuff to your family. It's just he wants to sell his insurance product. However, something clearly suspicious has happened. There are no bones. There is something going on. I, I think the kids did leave the house. Am I going to be proven wrong somehow? I mean, I hope not, because I want the kids to be alive. Because if he and the rest of the pro-Mussolini townsfolk were plotting the arson attack, then they'd be daft to announce it directly to the victim's face. Yes, but as we've established many times on The Casual Criminalist, criminals are often fairly daft and dumb. That's some heavy-handed foreshadowing. So there's a solid chance that it was just an off-the-cuff remark, what later turned out to be a horrifically incriminating prophecy. Also, by December 1945, the bodies of Ilducci and his mistress had already been turned into loose sacks of goop by an angry crowd in Milan, so it seems strange that his supporters in a distant land would still be willing to go so far for his memory. As for the Mafia connection, there isn't really a Mafia connection. Seriously, as far as we found, people just took the fact that George and Jenny were Italian and filled in the blanks with their number one ethnic stereotype. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we, well... I, my doing the same thing was because while well, his family were murdered, it seems, and his house was burned down, and there was some suspicious Italian dude who loved Mussolini there before. Wait, that's not got nothing to do with the gangster angle. But okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I filled in the blanks with a stupid stereotype. But it what there's some suspicious stuff going on. Come on, you did it too. You know you did. George's trucking business could have put him on the wrong end of an extortion attempt or perhaps a job offer that he rejected, but without any evidence, all of that is just baseless speculation. Likewise, the so-called pineapple bomb never actually was never actually verified by the authorities. In fact, the fire started from George's study where the fuse box and telephone lines were hooked up. Why would a firebomb be thrown at the roof to start a fire there? Because it's an easy place to start a fire and have it thrown. I mean, someone explain the pineapple bomb then. It all seems a bit thin. Normally, I'm quite in agreement with Callum, but it does seem a little bit suspicious. Okay, but then again, there are reasonable explanations. Be a skeptic, Simon. Yes, okay, so every one of these things is individually quite explainable. Okay, but then where are the bones? I'm, I just have to come back to where are the goddamn bones? The hotel manager already apparently spotted four Italian-looking kids with two shady Italian men, and it's one of the strongest bit of bits of evidence for this theory. But the odds are that she probably just saw a completely different Italian family passing through. As it transpired, she had actually seen the kids after the fire in the papers. It's probably she was mixing up her memories or simply going for the cash reward. Yeah, entirely possible. Like, memory is terrible.
There remains the idea, though, that the Sodder kids could have been abducted by someone else entirely, perhaps someone they knew and trusted, or a stranger who set the fire then herded them out through the house uh, to what they thought was safety. If that was the case, then we don't know if they made it through the night alive or where they eventually ended up. That is kind of what I'm leaning towards. Something happened to them. Like, I don't think they burned in that fire. Where are the Where are the bones? Explain the bones. Oh my god, I'm sounding like a conspiracy theorist. Explain the way the towers collapsed so perfectly. Explain the no stars in the moon photos. Alex Jones territory. Jesus Christ, whistle, stay clear. The official verdict was correct. However, if you're holding out hope for a happy ending, brace yourselves, because currently the most likely scenario is also the most tragic. In 2005, Stacey Horn of NPR conducted a pretty thorough investigation for a radio show and leans towards the conclusion that the children really did die in the fire. Oh. Everything that came after was just a cocktail of denial, grief, and survivor's guilt. To her take on the strange behavior of the fire chief was that he actually did find some remains on the day of the fire and concealed the information from the family. As Horn put it, a brief informal search takes place, but instead of the skeletons they expect to find, there are just a few bones and pieces of internal organs. But because the family were never really informed right away, they and generations of followers of the story were utterly convinced that nothing was really found. Bit of a move from the fire chief, but perhaps he wanted to save them from the trauma on Christmas. Not as if it was going to be very merry anyway, though. Maybe he thought he could kick the unpleasant can down the road to the fire marshal's investigative team scheduled to come by in the new year. Of course, the marshal never got the chance, so burying the liver was Chief Morris's way of making amends without admitting his fault directly. Morris, it's a very weird way of doing these things, isn't it? If so, then what actually happened to those real remains? Well, Horn's piece contains a few bombshells which weren't included in many of the popular versions of the story over the years, chief among them the heaps and heaps of gasoline. George Sodder used his basement as a garage space for working on his truck engines, and reports state that he had several 55-gallon drums of gasoline down there. How the hell did people not think to mention that before? I don't know. And also, well, this is why Simon arrives at the conclusion of the children escaped because where are the bones? And now it's like, well, the fire had a huge amount of accelerant in the basement, which probably incinerated the bones. And anything left over, the chief removed because he's a weirdo. It's interesting how your opinion could totally change when new evidence is presented. It's a good thing. I've said this maybe even on this show before. Like when you always, it's good to change your opinion. It really is. The combination of this and the layer of dirt on top might have turned the basement into a super high temperature pressure cooker, which could have completely incinerated the remains of the children more thoroughly than even a conventional funerary incinerator. The added heat explains why the firemen only found assorted fragments, which later disintegrated underground. The main fire lasted under an hour, but it smoldered on for far longer and could continue to do so even with limited oxygen underground, provided there was enough fuel. Then there was the testimony of the oldest son, John. Shortly after the fire, he gave a statement saying that he actually saw the missing siblings after the fire started. He claimed to have run into their rooms and shaken them awake during his escape. He later changed his story, saying that he only called out to them through the doorway. But could that have been his own memory clouding the facts to protect him from the crushing guilt of having left his siblings behind? Yes, totally. Because the human brain, I mean, the shit we could do, like, to protect ourselves, to, like, keep ourselves sane, is pretty, pretty wild. The fact that nobody else saw them trying to escape is easily explained by some of the more unsettling features of house fires, smoke inhalation. Uh, I mean, it's gotta be smoke inhalation, right? 
Without smoke alarms, victims can be rendered unconscious by smoke inhalation before they even wake up. Even if it's, yeah, it's why we have smoke alarms, because it's like that smoke, you know, the woman woke up, the mother, but it's not necessarily going to be enough. And even if they do, young ones are prone to panicking. Fire Marshal Sterling Lewis told NPR, We find them under beds, we find them in closets, we find them curled up in the bathtubs. The instinct is to run and hide, which tragically almost always results in death. Add to this fact that in 2013, one of George Sodder's son-in-laws believed that he and the boys might have merely flooded the engines on the trucks that night. Oh yeah, there was the, the engines and the, uh, the, the ladder since they were in such a rush to start them. The idea that someone tampered with them was of course never proven, because uh, probably because there was no proof. The trucks just didn't start, just like the fire crew just didn't arrive and the children didn't escape. It's a tough pill to swallow, especially if it's your own family, but it may well be the reality. Yeah, it may well be. There's also the phone lines being cut, but that alone is like, is that really what happened or was it actually heat that went through them? Like, because with all this other other evidence, you know, before it's reasonably explained, you'd be like, oh my God, the phone lines were cut. And I was like, the phone lines were cut. I really did think that. But now it's like a lot of this other evidence has disappeared or been explained away very reasonably. So you'd be like, ah, it's probably a reasonable explanation for that as well. The more we hear this side of the story, the more it seems like all the puzzle pieces from before were seized by the traumatized family and Simon, apparently, <laughs> earlier in this episode, in an attempt to explain away a painful truth. Betty, Jenny, Lewis, Martha, and Maurice were all gone, and there was no kidnapping plot, no conspiracy. The children had died that night as the rest of the family looked on, powerless to save them. I'll take an imaginary kidnapping plot over that any day. Yeah, me too. I'm, ha- I'm happy they were kidnapped. Turns out they were kidnapped. Great. <laughs> Ah. Two strange messages. Although it may have all been a hopeless, grief-fueled fantasy, George Sodder lived with the belief that he would one day find his kids until the day he died. In fact, he thought he genuinely might have seen one of them back in 1967. More than 20 years after the fire, with the billboard faded and peeling, the Sodders received a tip from down in Texas. A woman in a bar claimed she spoke with a man, drunkenly rambling about a fire in West Virginia. She was amazed to hear that the guy was one of the kids that went missing that day, Lewis. George did a bit of digging and discovered that the man had a brother, potentially the older boy, Maurice. He drove all the way down to Houston to meet the man he believed was his missing kid. It's going to be sad because it's not going to be, is it? It's going to be some con game or something. The the woman's in on it who phoned him somehow. I don't know. It's too too much, isn't it? People are pieces of s***, remember. There was certainly a resemblance 20 years on. There was no knowing what little Lewis might look like, but George was convinced that it was him. However, when the man and his brother met, he told George that he never even claimed to be his son. Someone must have misunderstood him or made up the rumor. Still, George never could ex- never could shake the feeling that the little boy was right there in front of him. But for some reason, maybe he didn't remember, maybe someone was stopping him, he couldn't tell his father what he needed to hear. I don't think anyone was stopping him. I think they came up with a con and he got cold feet. Simple. Occam's Razor. There wasn't enough of me embracing Occam's Razor in this one. You know, the simplest possi- the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. So I'm back on it, alright? The second and final chance George ever got at seeing his son came in 1968. For the thousands of people who drove past the Sodder children's fading faces on the billboard day after day, they would have noticed something different, a new picture to replace the childhood photo of little Lewis. It showed a young man who had an undeniable resemblance to the little boy in the old image. In this new picture, he was in his late 20s, with dark, curly hair, the same straight nose as his father. The Sodders had received this image in the mail a few weeks prior. Jenny went to the mailbox and found a letter inside addressed to her. Although there was no return address, the postmark clearly showed it came from Kentucky. On the back of the photo was a message, Lewis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, little boys, 
A90132 or 35. Oh my god, that's a mystery. Is this just someone being a dickhead again? Like, who sends a mystery thing like that? It's not... Why? Why? Not knowing what to make of the cryptic note, the Sodders sent a PI to the town in Kentucky to investigate. They never heard from him again. The family were worried that if this really was their boy, then whoever took him might do harm if they published the discovery, so they did the only thing they could. They added the picture to the billboard, hung an enlarged copy over their fireplace, and prayed that someone would come forward with more information. But nobody ever did. Wrap up. George Sodder died one year after the message in 1969. Jenny, who only wore black from the day of the fire to her last day on earth, kept the billboard up until she passed away in 1989. Before her kids had it taken down, they changed the message stenciled at the top. One last push for information in memory of their parents. It now read, After 30 years, it is not too late to investigate. Well, now we're past 75 years, and I'm sorry to say that the case is probably a little past its expiry date now. The last surviving member of the Sodder family house fire, Little Sylvia, passed away earlier this year, raising the profile of the case on web forums in the hope that, in the age of information, someone would offer up new clues. In retrospect, though, it seems that this one was solved a long time ago. The way that a tragic house fire spiraled out into such a famous unsolved mystery is nothing more than a sad fable about the power of hope and grief. It can sometimes be easier to lose yourself in a web of imaginative intrigue than accept a terrible truth. That's my take. But as always, you're welcome to disagree. Mafia conspiracy, Mussolini fanboys, alien abduction, whatever takes your fancy. And yeah, I have to say, I started being like, I didn't know what it was. I didn't think it was definitely not aliens. Could have been the Mafia until that was proven wrong. Mussolini, maybe. There seemed to be a lot of stuff pointing towards a bit of a conspiracy. But then, yeah, no, I changed my mind. It's It's just sad. It's just a sad, horrible accident. Dismembered appendices. Number one. According to a local paper, the man spotted stealing the block and tackle was tracked down and admitted to the crime in 1968. Uh, the block and tackle? That's the, the, the machine that was used to lift the engines out of the cars. He even claims that he actually did cut the telephone lines thinking they were power lines, but no, re- nobody really believed that he had managed to scale the telephone pole and pull this off. He kind of just fades into obscurity after that, so there's no way to verify who he was or if he even definitely existed. Number two, if you want a little more gasoline on the speculative fire, you'll enjoy the fact that the cryptic string of digits on the back of the alleged photo of Lewis 90132 was actually the postal code of Palermo, Sicily. Now, the mafia theory was already well trodden by then, so this could have been part of a sick hoax. After all, anyone could see Lewis's childhood photos on the billboard and chosen adult lookalike. We'll call it grief catfishing, probably one of the most disgusting pranks possible. Yes, as I said earlier, remember that there are people out there who are total pieces of shit. And this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I'm not going to ask whether you enjoyed it because five children died. Um, most likely. Uh, if you did find it interesting, if you do enjoy this podcast as a whole, please do consider leaving it a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts allow it. Spotify still don't. I don't know why Spotify can get on that review train. Um, also, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe. And I'll be back real soon with another episode. Thank you for watching. <laughs>